the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I believe that abortion is a normal part of every woman's life. It was understood that if you have a baby, it's an unwanted baby, you get rid of it. Rarely, I thought about the baby. I didn't feel like it's a creature that I need to protect. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 Cast. And I got pregnant, and my baby was my baby since I saw the ultrasound. Hello, welcome back to the 180 cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. The very first episode of this podcast was on a topic I care about more than any other political question of the day. And that is why we've done three episodes so far on the pro-life, pro-choice flip. We did episode 14 with Sarah St. Ange on um, exceptions to abortion bans. We did episode 10 with Kathy Reisenwich, who switched from being pro-life to being Pro-choice, which was a fascinating episode. And uh, also we did episode one with Abby Johnson on whom the, the movie Unplanned was based on. The reason I do such episodes on a regular basis is because one, it's the biggest human rights issue of our time. And two, it's not the same story for everyone when they switch from one side to the other. Usually it's from being pro-choice to becoming pro-life. It's not the same for everyone how they finally come to that conclusion. And each person's story reveals a little bit of a different angle, a little piece of a larger picture of how people come to oppose legal abortion. Today, I have got somebody with me who provides a perspective we haven't had on the podcast before, and that is of someone who didn't grow up entirely under the U.S. Um, abortion laws, but rather in the Soviet Union. And the USSR had a sky-high abortion rate, and it has been the topic, of course, of much study by academics. But today, we have the privilege of hearing from somebody who has firsthand cultural knowledge of the situation, and her 180 story is somewhat colored by that. So my guest today is a frequent contributor to The Federalist, like myself, and has been published in The Daily Caller, Legal Insurre Insurrection, Ariel Magazine, and is one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter. She writes about feminism, the Soviet Union, and including what she remembers uh, from when Chernobyl exploded, which is also a piece that you can find at The Federalist when you are done listening to this podcast. Katya Sedgwick, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for this uh, glowing introduction. <laughs> you are so welcome. <laughs> uh, before we get started, note to the listener, don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast to get notified every Friday when 180 Cast episodes are released. 
Uh, these long-form interviews happen every other week, and on the other weeks I talk about the news and the big ideas that sort of shape our current events, as well as analyze these interviews to see what we can learn about how people change their minds. And of course, if you want to weigh in on this topic, which I highly encourage you to do, uh, maybe you have your own 180 story on this subject, please call or text at 323-999-1802. With that, we can begin. Okay, Katya, you yes. used to be pro-choice. So take me back Take me back to that mindset and why uh, did... Go ahead. Yeah, I wouldn't even say that I was pro-choice because that was not uh, the language of the discourse sure. in which I grew up. I was just... Uh, I Basically, when I came of age, when I understood, uh, when I was a teenager, when I, I understood what procreation is and how it functions and how uh, babies are born or not born... I believe that abortion is a normal part of every woman's life, and I just accepted it as such. Pro-choice and pro-life are American terms, so that was completely alien to me. I just knew that women have abortions. And at, the, at that time in the Soviet Union, when I was a teenager, when I was 13, Mikhail Gorbachev became Secretary General of the Communist Party, and then Perestroika started in Glasnost. So people started discussing things that weren't discussed before, and among them was abortion. And that was usually discussed in the context uh, of uh, obstetrical care, which was pretty atrocious in the Soviet Union. Obstetrical care? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. and that um, the general tone of the discussion was that women are not treated well, women are not treated well in uh, doctor's offices, women are not treated well when they go uh, to give birth at the hospital, and um, hospital staff is rude, um, the care is substandard, the um, uh, hospital rooms are uh, uh, filled to capacity or more, and um, basically the care that women received was beyond uh, what you would expect in a uh, first, second world country. So, and, and uh, there was much discussion of that going on, but I didn't really hear anything about the baby. Mm -hmm. So it, I, I just never thought about um the baby being alive until it basically comes out. Although I understood that at some point it does become a human being because that was undeniable. And another thing that I should say about it is that there was um, a general lack of knowledge about how baby develops inside of the womb. Like, for instance, it was believed that, um, um, like when I talked to older women, they don't think that baby moves until 20 weeks. Really? And uh, Yeah, because you don't have ultrasounds. So the baby doesn't move until you feel it moving. Okay, that makes sense. So you didn't learn about any, like, uh, pre-born development in school? Oh, no, no. Uh, well, I mean, we learned certain things, but we didn't learn uh, the... Um, uh, it was not stressed when we were talking about development that uh, it is a human being. It was mainly, merely that uh, at some point, oh, it becomes fertilized. Or, and, and it was just one lesson anyways. Um, there was not much of a discussion of that going on. 
And then another thing is that I don't really, um, it's kind of hard to blame Soviet women or like even Russian women today, because um, today uh, in the U.S., the pro-life movement places a great emphasis on adoption and many pro-lifers adopt. It's reassuring, so because many pro-lifers adopt, it's reassuring for a woman that she can uh, deliver the baby and give it to a nice family. But in the Soviet Union, uh, well, some people adopted, but it wasn't so much of an institution. And basically, it was understood that if you if you have a baby, it's an unwanted baby, you get rid of it. Uh, it goes into one of those awful orphanages, and it's kind of hard to blame a woman for um, not choosing life so, in that part. Yeah, yeah. So during that time, what what was the? So you mentioned the obstetrical care, you, you know, became an mm-hmm. issue, and that things were. Uh, hospitals were overcrowded. They weren't getting the care that they needed. So that was mostly the reason why women turned to abortion. They felt like they didn't have the resources to carry a baby to term in a healthy way and be able to raise the oh, kids. Or was oh, it no, more no, the no. general economic? Uh, I, uh, well, yeah, th- there were definitely the economic issues that played uh, that uh, large economic issues because um, people simply couldn't afford to have another baby. And then a general pessimistic outlook. For instance, I worked uh, with a Russian woman who said that when she got pregnant with her second baby, and that was about 1972, her mom told her, oh, I think you should abort because we can't have another another baby in this country. And her mother, um, she survived Stalinism. She survived, uh, that was in uh, Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. She survived the blockade of that city in World War II. So she went through a lot and she just didn't believe that her daughter needs to have another baby. She did keep the baby and she came to the United States. So um, that, uh, you know, there's a happy ending to this story. But people, it's just the general pessimistic outlook. People did not believe that they can't have another baby. Was there a difference in faith communities on um, oh, whether um, or not they used well, the abortion w- to such an extent? Um, you know, I'm mainly talking about the uh, quote-unquote Soviet heartland of Russia, Ukraine, Belarus. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were very few faith communities there. Uh and religion was very much, um, I wouldn't say it was completely outlawed, but it was uh, strictly regimented by the KGB. So mm-hmm. very few people actually practiced this. And um, the, generally the population was uh, secular. So there was not just a lack of knowledge about the child or any attention really paid to the child, but also a lack of resources and on top of that, uh, just a general lack of hope. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read recently that the abortion rate reached in some parts up to something like 770 over 100 in certain parts of Russia. So the vast majority of children were being aborted. Why is it just, was it also like a lack of knowledge about um, about contraception and things like that or like rhythm planning and stuff like that? Because that's incredibly high. Yeah, I think the official statistic was 6.7 abortions per woman. So, uh, and not every woman even had two children. So, yeah, it was sky high. Um, There were some contraceptives, there were condoms, but that was a Soviet connected at some point. So, um, 
yeah, so although certain, uh, there were some products uh, that were hard to get and they weren't uh, very pleasant to use. And it's hard to say, well, of course, there is a written method, but um, like even in the U.S. today, with all the knowledge that we have about it, um, it, it not many people use it. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's just kind of hard to say why uh, pregnancy rate and then and the four abortion rate was so high. Um, maybe it had something to do, and it's purely speculation here, uh, maybe it had something to do with uh, there being so few men in the Soviet Union that women vastly uh, outnumbered men. Mm. And for that reason, maybe it was difficult to say no. See. But it's purely speculation. <laughs> Because I, I just can't come up with any other good explanation for that. that but it's a good question sense. because, um, yeah. yeah, because, um, yeah, why were there so many unplanned pregnancies? Do you think? Do you think abortion is, in some sense, can act kind of like a social contagion in the way that people have shown suicide to act? I'll, again. <laughs> Rank speculation here, but um, uh. in that when you ha- when there are lots of people, there are people around you who are getting abortions, that it makes it almost the default choice that you would do that as well. Um, uh, maybe, yeah, because um, women definitely talked about it. It wasn't like oh, shout out my abortion or whatever. People whispered about it, and yeah, in a way, it was like, well, we all have this experience where you know. Um, the Soviet women, that's what we do. So there was, um, well, there was a taboo. There was definitely a lot of shame associated with that. But at the same time, it's almost like some people maybe um, reveled in this kind of, there's something masochistic about it. Mm. Um, Yeah, but it, it just, it was very normal. So how did you come to change your mind on it, given that you grew up with not a lot of knowledge and in a culture where everybody had an abortion and where there weren't very many resources? How did you come to change your mind? Well, uh, it was a long process, um, step by step, basically. I came to the United States and then uh, we were living in Sacramento, California. I went to junior college. And uh, of course, there was this pro-life, pro-choice debate. And I, I didn't understand, like, oh, like, why is it? Why can't we say pro-abortion, anti-abortion? And, and I still like I, I'm, I'm more comfortable with anti-abortion because I don't I don't personally do anything that makes me pro-choice. Mm-hmm. Um but um, uh, I was attending junior college and I was taking um, uh, a writing class. Um, and in that class, we were assigned to write an essay about abortion, way pro-life and pro-choice argument. And I heard a lot of things that I, it just never occurred to me, like, oh, that's actually a baby. Hmm. And um, it was a completely new idea. But I settled at that time. I was, uh, what, 17. I settled on, um, uh, I decided that, like, oh, well, maybe it's a baby, but it's really up to an individual to decide whether or not it is a baby. So um, I'm not going to make that choice for anyone else. And that was pretty satisfactory because I didn't, I um, I figured out that amidst all of that, I figured out that it's really easy to not get pregnant. And I'm not mm-hmm. going to get pregnant. And I kind of figured that it would be actually an awful experience to have an abortion. 
And um, so um, I never did. And I'm, I'm glad that I left the Soviet Union when I was 16 and a virgin so that um, I never had to deal with these issues myself. And, uh, you know, I, I never went through that experience. Um, so I never got pregnant. And I just thought, that, well, that's, that's me. And it's not going to happen to me. And I just didn't think much about it. And also, living in the United States, I didn't know that many. Actually, I didn't know anybody who had abortion, or at least nobody who talked about it. Mm-hmm. Because um, it's just so easy, you know, to avoid that. And then, um, and then I got married and I got pregnant. And my baby was my baby since I saw the ultrasound when she was uh, nine weeks old. Mm-hmm. And it, I guess that experience is what really made me change my mind. When you were taking that class and you had to weigh those arguments, was there any specific fact or specific argument or something somebody said a conversation that really jumped out to you like when you when it finally clicked like oh this is a human child um i would say it was prenatal development um although at that point i remember thinking like oh but at that stage it looks more like a fish and now it looks more like a worm and now you know so um it wasn't really like that, I didn't feel like it's a creature that I need to protect. But at the same time, um, just talking about the baby is what made me change or begin to change my mind about it. Just other people referring to it as a baby because that's what um, lines up. Well, prenatal development in general, because it never, uh, like I said, I thought about obstetrical care, but it was mostly in terms of how a woman was treated. But not necessarily, or rarely, I thought about the baby. Right, because And actually, as a matter of fact, like, I remember in the 80s, I was reading in Soviet magazines about how in the U.S., you know, uh, there is ultrasound, so they can identify babies uh, who uh, have, like, Down syndrome or some other abnormalities. And I was reading it, and I was thinking, like, oh, so, like, that's how I know, I would know which baby to abort. And now that I think about it, I it just, uh, I shudder, you know, um, I can't believe that. It, well, I mean, I was also very young. I was like 14 or 15 or something like that. But it's um, pretty embarrassing to me that I actually have that thought. So you mentioned that you knew it was like a human, but you didn't think of it as a creature that you needed to protect. Mm-hmm. So, so that like maternal instinct to protect is that what kicked in for you and you had your own child and you saw the ultrasound um it's a more immediate experience um i guess i well um i think um i i mean back when i started thinking about the human child as a human child before before the baby is born it was very abstract and also, everybody I knew, like all my friends at that time, were like, "Oh, pro life, yeah." Like, oh, what? You know, I and I don't, I didn't necessarily want to think about it too much. Mm-hmm. Um, nor did I need to. Right. So there was still like a social aspect, even when you were here in the states, mm-hmm. that you didn't, yeah, feel con- compelled particularly to espouse the pro life position. Yes, definitely. Would you have become pro-life, let's say, if you 
had never gotten pregnant, do you think you would have gotten to that point of saying that these are humans that need to be protected? Uh, probably. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I probably would because uh, actually my friends changed too, and um, um, I hear more of a different um, opinion. So probably, yeah. Interesting. So but how, it, did, uh, how did but, your friends change their minds? Was it similar story? Uh, no, I just got new friends who were pro-life. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, easy. I just got new friends. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, my husband is. Uh, I guess he's more like me. Like we're, you know, once we had the baby, it's all completely different. Yeah. So, um, but otherwise, yeah, I got new friends. <laughs> and I guess that was a part of it. Okay, so it seems to me that, and tell me if I'm wrong on this, but the situation in Soviet Russia was basically like everything that the pro-life movement asserts is also true of women in troubled circumstances in the U.S., right? Because there's like, or just like women in general, like right? there's a lack of like the general pro-life movement asserts that there's like a lack of knowledge of mm -hmm. of fetal development and that it's a human child. There's a, a lack of resources is something that they also focus a lot on. And in fact, um, pregnancy centers outnumber Planned Parenthood clinics by like two to one. So that's mm -hmm. interesting. And then also there's this idea that um, abortion is normalized, that it's just something that people do and people sort of accept it as culturally just something that people go along with to the point where you're not really culpable for your own actions because it's been established as a as a norm. Do you mm -hmm. see do you see that as well? Like it kind of seems like all of those points are encapsulated in in Soviet Russia, but also it doesn't translate to what's happening in the US because the US is is fairly different, right? Uh, well, there's more resources. There's definitely more information. And um, the most important resource is that it's possible to give your baby, to put your baby in a good family. And it's possible to rely on that. Because like I said, I don't necessarily blame some women who said, who would say like, no, I, I just don't, I can't have this baby myself. I absolutely cannot afford it. I cannot bring another child into this world, and I don't know anybody who can take care of it. Yeah, and it seems like there was a lot of that going on when you were growing up. Mm -hmm. And that was basically the general attitude. Yep. So where does the pro-life mov movement go from here, though? Because they've established all of these as sort of the tenets that are relied on to lower the abortion rate, but it's unclear that focusing on these things are exactly what's lowering the, the abortion rate versus the widespread use of contraception. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and actually, that's another point that contraception is just so easy to acquire here, to the point that it's actually um, lowering the birth rate, because people, um, because women so effectively, quote unquote, plan families, which usually means just not getting pregnant. Um, I think um, the, what I can see happening is um, abortions becoming more like like what we did to smoking. People don't smoke cigarettes anymore, and um, although that's obviously a far lesser 
uh, social evil than uh, than abortion or even drug use in general, um, where it would become less and less socially acceptable, and adoption would become more and more uh, the choice of women. But I think it's also like. I really don't like the current developments in the quote pro choice. The shout out to abortion, like to me, that's just gross. And um, I think this women, uh, like they have issues or whatever. And um, it's just like, although, like I said, I grew up in a culture where everybody had abortion, but women weren't necessarily proud of them, or they weren't proud at all. They were embarrassed, and it was something that. Uh, was um, you know whispered about and not bragged. Mm-hmm. Since women in America, like this, is a very wealthy first world country where there is the institution of adoption. There, there are places where women can ob- obtain resources. There's the internet and widespread knowledge of fetal development. Do you see? Do you see American women as sort of being in a different category in terms of culpability than uh, the Russian women that you grew up with because of that? Or do you see it just as variations of the same thing? Like, oh, they know a little bit more, but not enough. There are some resources, but not enough. Like if abortion were made illegal tomorrow, would women be necessarily culp- Would they be culpable um, at fault for going out and seeking abortions? Um, I think there is some degree of culpability, yes, but at the same time, I also think that a lot of them probably didn't do it on their own volition, uh, and a lot of them are very young, and they probably don't fully understand what is going on, like a lot of them are underaged. Mm-hmm. When you so, say of, but, their, of their own volition, do you mean sort of oh, pressure I, from partners, pressure mm-hmm, from family? Mm-hmm, yeah. And um, I don't think it's right to make a woman alone responsible for that decision if she is very young and she is facing that pressure. Yeah. So American opinion on legal abortion hasn't really budged in a long time. Something like three quarters believe that Roe v. Wade should stay in place as precedent in ensuring that abortion is is legal in every part of the United States. Um. Given what you said about thinking that abortion will go the way of, of smoking or it's just something that people don't do, why do you think that opinion hasn't changed? Because um, opinions on whether somebody identifies as pro-life and pro-choice tend to zigzag up and down a bit. Like right now, most people identify, most Americans identify as pro-choice. Um, but why aren't more people seeming to change their minds on this? It's like, the vast majority of Americans believe that first trimester abortions should be illegal and over 90% of abortions are in the first trimester. Why Why doesn't there seem to be a lot of traction in that? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think a lot of it has to do um, actually with people not really thinking about it. I mean, yes, they have this information, but uh, the same way I was for like probably... I don't know, 10 or 15 years, oh, well, I don't want to have an abortion myself, but um, let's uh, let every individual decide that for herself. Let every woman decide that for herself. And it's, um, uh, I guess, the logic is pretty 
meaningful to a lot of people. And that's usually people who don't, you know, like I said, they're not going to have abortions themselves. It's just they're not going to have that experience. So you see changing your mind as something that's mostly dependent on your personal experience, like being pregnant? Well, not necessarily, but I think it's also, it's more, I think in this particular case, people are not going, it's people who are not going to have abortion because they know how to not get pregnant. And they're pretty good about it. They're very responsible. But then they... Um, yeah, so they don't have to run up against that yes. issue themselves. Yeah, so it's more of a, a political tribalism issue, I think, than anything else. Do you because- have any idea on like how that changes, though? Because that's quite the predicament to be in. As I said, the pro-life movement has these certain things that they're focused on about knowledge resources and that there's a general culture of death but what else what ingredient is missing here because most of the leaders of the pro-life movement say say they do want abortion to end but it doesn't seem like we're changing very many people's minds you know one thing i can tell you i think it's a very it looks like a very religious movement and there's a lot of people who are not religious and uh, but but to me, pro-life argument is not a religious argument. It's a scientific secular argument, and maybe it's easier to reach people on that level rather than um, have that knee-jerk reaction like, oh, that's you know, crazy religious people who want to subjugate women and yada yada, rather than um, just see um, strictly a scientific argument presented. Interesting, because. I've heard from many people who are pro-choice, pro-abortion, who maintain that, yes, it is a human life, but, and they understand the fetal development and all of that. They're very cognizant of that, but they still say, ultimately, it's up to the woman to decide whether she continues to carry that baby all the way to term. And she is allowed to decide whether or not she views it as a baby or not. And it's nobody else's business, but hers, in which case, how do you make a secular argument to them that, because it seems like that's a moral decision, right? It's like, okay, you mm-hmm. understand it's a human being. Is it right or wrong to end that life? Well, I think, well, it's still, if it's alive, it doesn't matter whether you believe in God or not. It's still life. Um, there are some circumstances under which there should be exceptions, like uh, to save the life of mother, rape, incest. Um, but... Uh, I just don't see it as a religious argument. And there's, a, like I said, there's a lot of, it's a, at the end, it's political tribalism. And certain people just are not interested in crossing over to the other side. Yeah. So if you had a few minutes with somebody who wasn't super political, but they identified as pro-choice, like one of those people you talked about who's very careful with their birth control and never anticipates having to run into this issue, how would you go about beginning to persuade them to oppose abortion you say you're going to use secular arguments so like how do you start that conversation um let me just say that i never had that conversation with anyone but (laughs) (laughs) unless Um, maybe on twitter (laughs) yeah i would say that basically that it's a baby and that of course we're taking into account the circumstances under which uh, some women some women live, but in today's world, you live in a civilized country. It's not um, 
it's abortion is actually something that was done in uh, that was practiced widely in the Soviet Union, and uh, it's not a sign of a healthy society to have a high abortion rate and that the baby can be taken care of by other means. And um, I would talk about that. But I don't think that, and I think, well, also pro-life rallies, I know that there's prayer and this and that going on. And of course, people are free to do whatever they want to do and they're they're free to express their religious opinions um, and whatnot. But it it is a turn-off to a lot of people. So you... But you are a person of faith yourself, right? So, well, I'm not. I wouldn't say that I'm deeply religious, but um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm Jewish, but I'm more on the secular side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Judaism. So you yep. don't. Mm-hmm. So for you personally, that doesn't really ground your belief in the sanctity of life per se. No, no. To me, it was all. Um, it's a secular argument and an ethical argument. Yeah, this has been mm-hmm. fascinating because now I sort of even have a counterpoint to some other things that I've I've heard from uh, somebody from the abolitionist movement who we also had on the podcast, Pastor John Speed, in episode 22. Um, so this has been very, very helpful. And I think it'll, this will be really helpful to the listener at home to sort of compare the various viewpoints on pro-choice versus pro-life and being, you know, traditionally pro-life versus being for, you know, an all-out ban on abortion tomorrow, if that's possible. Um, So -hmm. thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you for having me. Yes. And it's been so fascinating to hear that perspective that isn't completely grounded in in what abortion is like in the United States. I think it really provides a, a deeper level of insight. So thank you for that. Well, you thank can, you. <laughs> <laughs> you can follow Katya on Twitter at Katya Cedric. That's K-A-T-Y-A-S-E-D-G-W-I-C. She comments on parenthood, politics, and you... There's a lot of Russia and... Um, yeah. Yes, Russia. I was going to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and Russia, lots of that. And you can find most of her writing at The Federalist, she has also written about one of my favorite bones to pick, actually, which is the question of whether leggings are pants. Um, Katya, oh. <laughs> are leggings pants or not? Absolutely not. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. We can be best friends for life now. <laughs> you can call or text the flip phone at 323-999-1802. You can flip out on this issue, flip my position, or tell me about your own flip-flop. That's 323-999-1802. And of course, you can follow the podcast at 180cast and follow me at Georgie underscore Borman, B-O-O-R-M-A-N. And if you have a quick minute at the end of this podcast, please, if you could do me this amazing favor of reviewing the podcast on iTunes, now called Apple Podcasts, I think. It really helps the podcast grow. Just, you know, a sentence or two. That would be fantastic. Reviews are like the fertilizer for this little podcast plant. And the more reviews we have, the more fun we can have on this podcast. So that would be awesome if you could help with that. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got. In the middle of a struggle, Lord, let me see who 
Executive producer Kevin McCullough. Music by Ruthie Kraft and Joachim Nordenson. Who I am, what I need, who I've got to be.